This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for April 12th, 2023. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, today I'd like to talk about vaccines. One of the common questions that clinicians are currently getting is about when it's appropriate for patients to get additional booster shots. I know it's a complicated area, and guidance from public health authorities has been somewhat mixed. So what do we know that can help inform this sort of decision? Steve, it's still true that it's difficult to set policy against a changing landscape. Remember that many, maybe most people throughout the world have already been infected, so there's a lot of pre-existing immunity. In addition, many have been vaccinated with a variety of different vaccines administered on differing schedules. All of the data we have at this point are observational rather than trial data. And that makes it difficult to make generalizations. On top of that, of course, the prevalent variants keep changing, and it's impossible to guess how good vaccine immunity will be against whatever strain is currently prevalent. So Eric and Steve, it is hard to know how to keep up with the right vaccine schedule. As we all remember, we've only had vaccines. The initial studies started two and a half years ago. And that initial set of studies, which were two years in duration, have just come to a close, both the Pfizer and the Moderna studies. So we do have to be careful in how we interpret data in the changing landscape as the data are still being generated, even from the foundational studies. Part of what we've learned two years ago, year and a half ago in the summer of 2021, that some populations, like our immunosuppressed patients, didn't respond as well and needed more vaccinations. As we learned, Frustratingly, towards the end of 2021 and leading into 22, was that important variants could emerge like Omicron and rapidly spread around the world, forcing us to rethink our approach. And then through these different major seismic events, again, only over the last year or two, we've had to adapt our vaccination policies in terms of the number of vaccines with some of our community members needing multiple shots for primary series, not just two, but three in our immunocompromised patients, needing boosters towards the middle end of 21 as we demonstrated waning immunity, and then further boosters as different variants like Omicron emerged. So Eric, it is very challenging to keep up with the changing landscape as we understand different hosts and their immunocompetence and the immune response from different vaccines in relation to different variants that have emerged and circulate widely. So with all of that, what do we know today that can help people decide for themselves about boosting? I think there are some general lessons. We published a study this week that makes some of those points. This was a database study performed using information on people in North Carolina who'd received the bivalent vaccine, either the Pfizer or Moderna versions. The investigators found that the vaccine was effective, though it was more effective in preventing hospitalization and death than infection. However, as we've seen before, protection waned over time. The study was performed recently, so many of the strains that were circulating were quite distant antigenically from the BA4, BA5 strain that served as a basis for the design of the vaccine. I think there are a couple of general lessons from this study and everything else we've learned. First, Vaccines aren't perfect, but they do work, particularly for the most important endpoints of serious disease and death. And they even work in the face of the evolutionary changes that have occurred to the virus over time. 
There's no question that boosting helps, though the benefit of boosting does decrease over time. Eric, I think you point out what, at least for me, is one of the most critical points, which is the endpoint of interest. And much of the data we continue to discuss in public health arenas, in our pages, as we care for patients and our communities is the endpoint of interest. And breakthrough infection, in my mind, is not as important as severe illness. And I think we still see the benefits on the attenuation of severe illness, whether it's related to the newer vaccines, to more recent boosting, or to hybrid immunity that so many of us have from prior vaccination and infection. But I think this, to me, is the most important point, is that we are not seeing substantial hospitalization and death to the degree that we saw a year or two ago. And in fact, it's coming more in line with what we see with many other respiratory viruses. I would argue it's still unacceptable, but it is part of what we see with severe respiratory infection in those who are more vulnerable. So let's get back to the question that I started with. What should caregivers be recommending to their patients? So as of the time we're recording, the answer here in the U.S. is pretty easy. The FDA has only authorized a single dose of the bivalent vaccine. However, rumor has it that they will soon authorize a booster for those at highest risk of developing severe illness. That means that physicians will have the option of giving some of their patients additional doses of vaccine. It's not clear, however, that additional doses will be recommended, only that they will be available. I'm curious as to what you're going to say, Lindsay. My own feeling is that it's an easy call for those at the highest risk. They should get boosted. I think that low-risk individuals could wait until the fall when there's likely to be a new vaccine formulation. For people at intermediate risk, it's not clear if a dose now will decrease the response to a dose in the fall, so I'd tend not to recommend at this point. However, if the rates of transmission, which are pretty low right now, rise considerably, I'd reconsider that. So, Eric, the current recommendations, as you noted, is a full primary series followed by the current booster. And these recommendations come from our public health agencies. And they're making these recommendations based upon the best data currently available. And I appreciate the hard work that they put into these assessments and feel their frustration as they try to make these judgments with inadequate data, though they're the best data available. And so you raise several important points, Eric. Is vaccination equal across all individuals? And is vaccination equal? across different periods of time when different variants are circulating and there's different levels of community infection and therefore infection pressure on all of us? And will seasonality play a role in this infection pressure? Perhaps this summer with more outdoor activity, there may be less transmission. And perhaps in the winter with crowding and clustering, there'll be more transmission, speculation, We see this with other respiratory viruses, but it's not as clear with COVID, and we will learn, unfortunately, as we go. However, many communities are congregate, be they senior living facilities or other kinds of institutional environments, and their transmission may continue to be year-round. So I think we have to pay attention to the circulating variant and the community infection pressure reflecting on the different communities. But the other piece you raise is the issue of the strength of the immune response 
And what is that strength over time and its specificity for the circulating variant? Here, more science is needed. That's an easy thing to say in a pandemic in motion where we're only two, two and a half years into the science. But I do think we need to understand more about is interval important? When I say interval, here it speaks to the issue of how important is vaccine interval on immune maturation and the quality of the immune response? And is simply the magnitude of the neutralizing antibody titer, the marker of adequate protection or not? I'm not sure that's the case. I think it is an important marker, but there's a broad immune response, T-cells, non-neutralizing antibodies, antibodies that may be less neutralizing for a variant than the vaccine match strain, but still neutralizing. So the immune response is complex and robust and evolutionarily designed that way. So I do think we're going to need to learn more about what is the quality of the immune response, what we think the associated protection is from severe illness rather than infection, and what that durability is. I suspect for many of us, an annual vaccination, perhaps prior to higher transmission seasons, may be recommended with a matched strain. But as you point out, Eric, in those in our community with a weakened immune system who respond less well to vaccination, such as our immunocompromised patients and our senior citizens, 80, 90 years old, with comorbid medical conditions, we may be thinking a little bit more about more frequent vaccination. So I'm not convinced that it's going to be a one-size-fits-all for everyone, but there'll be truly high-risk individuals that we need to pay more attention to in protecting, and maybe the rest of us who are at mild or moderate risk at best, where a broader vaccination interval may actually have some benefits. As long as we're discussing vaccines, I want to mention two studies we published last week that are about a very different vaccine, one that protects against respiratory syncytial virus. We talked about this vaccine in a recent podcast, but now we have some new data. So what did we learn? Last week, we published two studies, one in older adults and one in the infants of mothers who are vaccinated against RSV. Both studies used the same vaccine, which consists of the viral F protein in its prefusion confirmation derived from two different RSV subgroups, an antigen we've discussed in the past. Both were interim analyses that were pre-planned. Let's talk about the older adult study very briefly. This was a large placebo-controlled trial that enrolled almost 36,000 adults over age 60. Unfortunately for the sponsors, it was performed during the COVID outbreak when the rate of respiratory virus transmission was low. However, they were able to accrue 44 cases of lower respiratory tract illness and measure an efficacy of somewhere around 70 to 85%, depending on the definition of illness. In general, the vaccine was well tolerated. However, there were two concerning adverse events, a case each of Guillain-Barre and Miller-Fisher syndrome, both of which have been associated with other vaccines. This result is broadly similar to two studies we published last month one with a similar vaccine and the other with a viral vectored vaccine. So taken together, it looks as if vaccination could be a useful tool to protect older adults against RSV, though we need to learn more about the risks associated with each of the vaccines tested thus far. So Eric, as we've discussed before and earlier in this podcast, easily transmissible respiratory viruses like COVID, like RSV, cause significant mortality and morbidity in the U.S. and globally. 
So the need for vaccines in this space are incredibly high. In fact, we've discussed in prior podcasts that the science in developing the RSV vaccine, the prefusion stabilized confirmation, was part of the foundational science that allowed us as a community to rapidly respond to COVID and develop a vaccine in months. So I think these respiratory viral infections and our response are incredibly interwoven. But there are some important differences with RSV. First, it's a more stable virus in that it's been infecting humans for much longer than SARS-CoV-2. So the rate of evolution of RSV is not nearly as quick as what we have seen with COVID, though we've not looked nearly as intensively. In addition, we all have had substantial experience with RSV, both A and B, over years to decades. Thus, there is significant prior immunity upon which new viral infection occurs and that vaccination can augment. So I think there are important parallels. There are also important differences. What we can say from these data are the efficacy is very encouraging. That's easier to demonstrate as studies are powered for efficacy. So they have the tens of thousands of individuals exposed, unexposed, with an endpoint that is precisely measured. Safety, on the other hand, is much harder to assess because it's hard to predict what the risks might be because they're often varied. And as you point out, these two cases, one of Guillain-Barre and the other of Miller-Fisher, raise concerns that we have to carefully monitor as a community to better understand what the risks might be associated with this vaccine. We can't possibly see a one in a million or one in a hundred thousand side effect until threefold more individuals than the rate we're looking for have been exposed. And that, of course, is occurring in the background of individuals with complex medical conditions who are often those at greatest risk for severe outcome from these infections. So I think there is much to be learned. Safety has to be better explored. On the other hand, the severe morbidity and mortality associated with RSV should be looked at carefully as we understand the benefits and then monitor to better understand the risks to mitigate them. And then let's get back to the second study, the mother and infant study. What happened there? Steve, remember that RSV is a very important pathogen in infants, particularly those born prematurely. Unfortunately, infants have a relatively undeveloped immunity and respond poorly to vaccines. So for this trial, the investigators hypothesized that vaccinating pregnant women would produce an antibody response and that those antibodies would be transferred transplacentally and possibly in breast milk and give protection to infants. In this trial, the investigators administered vaccine or placebo to women between 24 and 36 weeks gestation. They followed the infants for medically attended lower respiratory tract RSV and for severe disease. Almost 3,600 women received the vaccine, along with a similar number who received placebo. In the first three months after vaccination, there were six cases of severe RSV in the children of vaccine recipients and 33 in the placebo group, yielding an efficacy of about 80%. However, the vaccine seemed to be less efficacious at preventing any medically attended disease and did not meet the preset criterion for success at this. There were few serious adverse events, and there did not appear to be an increased risk of fetal loss in this relatively small group of people. 
I think the results of the study are pretty encouraging, suggesting that this might be a strategy to protect this high-risk group of individuals. However, as pointed out in an accompanying editorial, the use of a vaccine in high-resource countries would need to be compared to the use of monoclonal antibodies, which are currently available. In lower resource environments, where RSV is even more of a challenge, vaccination would have to be tested independently. I think this study and the other study that we've discussed highlight two populations who are very vulnerable to severe illness associated with RSV. Seniors and those with severe comorbid medical conditions and neonates. And I think it's terrific to see these two sets of data next to each other to help us understand how this vaccine may help protect those who have the most severe consequences of RSV infection. I think part of what we see in the maternal infant study is a bit of biology as well. By vaccinating mom, passive transfer of humoral or antibodies can occur. Cellular transfer doesn't really occur. There are HLA and other immunologic differences. But passive transfer of antibody occurs. And these data suggest that that passive transfer of antibody helps protect baby during that vulnerable period of the first weeks to months of life when their immune system is still figuring out how to work and they're exposed to pathogens that can cause very severe illness. And this isn't unprecedented. We know this from tetanus. Neonatal tetanus can be prevented by vaccinating mom. We know this from hepatitis B, where hepatitis B immune globulin given to neonates whose mom may be infected and therefore they're exposed can help prevent acquisition of hep B. So this is taking advantage of an evolutionary pathway to protect neonates with an immature immune system from pathogens that can potentially be lethal. So I think the biology is cool. The principle this demonstrates fits what we know with other pathogens. And this is now another piece of data that helps us think through as a community how to protect some of our most vulnerable from a severe infection. I agree, Lindsay. These are bad infections and the opportunity to protect infants by vaccinating mothers is very attractive. I will point out that these studies are relatively small. As we discussed with the adult study, there were a couple of concerning events that occurred. And I think it's going to be very important to look at larger populations, as you said, in response to the last discussion. The same is certainly true of the pregnant women study. We will have to see if there are any adverse effects on pregnancy when larger groups of women receive the vaccine. Eric, I think you're absolutely correct. And the establishment of the biology and of the efficacy, I think, is incredibly important scientifically. But as you point out, as we think about rolling things out from a public health standpoint, the safety issues need to be further vetted and understood. And with a couple of thousand women studied, it does not tell us what the risks might be in tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. And some concerns have been raised, preterm birth or other potential complications need to be looked at carefully. And absolutely, the safety has to be fully vetted, discussed out in the open, properly understood across vaccine platforms in this setting to really understand the safety, minimize the risk, but to provide protection that many of our little ones really need. As we all know, RSV in the neonatal period can lead to very severe respiratory illness and compromise. So there's a potential benefit here 
and risks that have to be better understood and defined for us as a community to understand where this fits in. That is best done out in the open with healthy public discussion. But as we've seen with COVID and with other vaccines, benefits come with risks. They have to be understood, weighed properly, and then proper guidance given to maximize the opportunity for the community. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.